Welcome to the Awake Church Podcast. At Awake, our mission is simple. Know God, take action. We pray this podcast will help you on that journey. Steve Witt, let's welcome Steve. All right. Yes, I have books. I have one book that I brought, and um, it's the uh, pre-COVID book, 2019. <laughs> it's your prophetic life map, and I taught on this for about 20 years. Used to do it at Morningstar under different kind of title, basically helping young people find their way in life, you know, and make some learn how to make uh, choice design, you know, decisions, and uh, which is a which is a big thing nowadays. And uh, actually, over time. I realized it was starting to minister to a lot of older folks because what I found out, I live in a, in Florida, I, I do, I'm a snowbird, so I go back and forth to Florida and I've been doing that for eight years and I, uh, in Florida, uh, where I am, it's a different world. Like I'm a young person there, 66 and, um, you know, they're like, oh, well, you're young, you know, and I realized, I started learning there's this tier system in the last 30 of lives, 30, 30 years of life, you know, there's, there's the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and the 60s are, you know, like teenagers, and, and they really act like that. In fact, I, it was one thing my wife, uh, we talked about, I said, what are you, we live there, you know, and, and on Friday nights, it's pretty noisy in the park, uh, because they're all, they're all partying, you know, and I'm like, is this junior high? I mean, and they got 70s songs on, you know, so I get out there myself a little bit, you know, and... <laughs> You know, they built a tiki hut there so they could drink while they party, and you know, and it, it's, it's like, and then the summertime, it's the Wild West. It's like, they break every rule that's in the park. You know, we have a community pool there, and they show up with um, uh, alcoholic beverages, which you're not supposed to have at the pool, you know, and, uh, and then they bring glass into the pool. You're not supposed to have that in the pool. If a glass breaks, you're in big trouble. You got to drain the pool, but they're, you know, they're kids. They don't understand. 60, 70, 80 years old, you know, and, uh, and they're a constant problem. I, I just thought, I would rather, I would rather oversee 100 children than 100 seniors that have retired, because they're, they're aimless, they're just crazy, you know, so, so if you're not quite retired yet, that's what you have to look forward to. No, hopefully something better than that, but, uh, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. What we're going to do is we had a first session, second session, we'll have a little break in between. In the first sec- section, I want to I talk a little bit more on a note of uh, uh, kind of purposes of some, some esteeming purposes for uh, what I would call the legacy years. So in my book, I divide life up into um, three segments. First of all, I was a business coach for nine years, international United States and Canada, and uh, we taught, I don't know, thousands of people. I'm not sure what the numbers are, but... It was uh, through the Dale Carnegie courses. I was certified in three of those out of nine. And uh, we help people with, you know, business management. We help people. We had just, uh, a course had just been developed um, about two years before I left. Uh, and I, I'm trying to remember what it was called now. It was, uh, but it was basically about, uh, uh, it was kind of a strategic leadership course. So it was really about focusing. They were ahead of their time. I'm not sure how they are doing now. There's so many courses out there, so many coaches. There's more coaches in America than there are P 
people to be coached. And all the coaches are getting coached. And I'm a coach, you know, and you're probably a coach too. So we all, we're all coaching right now. And what we used to call mentoring or discipleship or something like that, it's now coaching. So just remember that Jesus coached 12 guys. And uh, they've been coaching the world through their lives and ministry ever since. So, so now we're contemporary with that. But, uh, you know, I, I taught the courses. I learned a lot. And I'm a prophetic guy, so, and in the Dale Carnegie courses, you, you know, you weren't allowed to talk about religion. They were ahead of their time. I can't talk about religion, can't use certain words, you know, and so I was very careful, and I, I, I got really trained in how to customize for a particular audience and work around and insert in very powerful ways. Uh, I got another opportunity this morning. Uh, I was at Starbucks getting my trusty latte here, and uh, um, people started coming in with suits on and dresses and everything. I thought, well, there must be a big wedding going on, you know. So I talked to this one guy. I said, hey, you look pretty good with your, uh, with your suit on there. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got Jehovah's Witness Convention. He says, it's just, it's not a big one. I mean, it's, it's kind of a regional gathering here on a, on a particular topic. And I said, well, what's the topic? And he said, well, patience. You know, we learn about patience. And I thought, I had a three-day seminar. I'm patient. You'd, you'd, have to, you'd learn patience just from this three-day seminar. So um, I'm chatting with him. I'm fascinated by this. I thought, man, like we can't fill our church up. And the ones that do come, come 30 minutes into worship on Sunday morning. That doesn't happen here, but it, but it does up in Cleveland because they're stuck in the snow even in July. But anyway, it's... Uh, so I thought, well, that's amazing, you know, and he's all excited about getting over there. My wife's in the car, you know, and I can get her coffee. I don't want to miss that, you know. I said, all right, yeah, yeah, that's right, you know, and, and he's telling me all about it and everything, and it's not a big group. It's, in fact, it's one of three going on in the state right now. There's just 5,000 in this one, and, uh, uh, and I see the guys coming in. They're kind of waving at each other. I mean, it's obvious who they are. They got suits on. They're either going to a wedding or going, they're Jehovah's Witnesses, and, uh, you know, uh, at chatting with him for a few minutes, I just... I went through a myriad of emotions, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking this is a quasi-cult, you know, JWs, and I admire the devotion and everything, so I'm thinking that, which is my normal, usual, first judgmental self, and then I started feeling compassion for him, and I started thinking, uh, this is not meant to be a heavy, but so I'll try to craft it so that you'll feel really good about it. But it's, I'm thinking, where are the Christians? <laughs> where are the Christians? You say, well, they're scattered out there, you know, throughout the United States, they're doing that thing that we do as Christians, you know. But I'm thinking, if they're filling three uh, arenas with 5,000 people or more, you know, because they go to the big ones where there's like, you know, 100,000 that come out, and they're going three days, they're dressing up. I quite, right now, I wouldn't belong to any religion where you had to dress up. I just wouldn't, you know. I, even if it's Christian, I'd say that. It's just not Jesus. He wore sandals. He wore, you know. It was, so anyway, um, uh, I, I started thinking about it, and I thought, we, we, we have got to do a better job. I mean, they go door to door. You go, well, yeah, but, you know, they're kind of compelled because if they want to be, you know, accepted by God, you know, that's what you do. And I, I get all that. I understand there's legalism sown in every religion that there is on planet Earth. But, uh, but I thought, yeah, but the passion they had, their passion, and they, they seem very authentic in their love for one another. And I thought, you know what? Christians have been painted so much with this, we're anti-everything. 
you know, in America especially. And um, there's got to be a way to turn that around. I'm not saying we, you know, wink at sin or we, but we've been so focused on sin, we've forgotten the power of heaven itself and the hope of heaven. We've forgotten the, the power of the goodness of God and the fruit of the Spirit that should be coming forth in a believer's life, you know. And so without any condemnation, do we still believe in conviction? I forget. We can be convicted. Yeah, the Holy Spirit convicts. Yeah, yeah, like, are, are we being coached by the Holy Spirit? We're being coached by the Holy Spirit. So I felt convicted by it. I mean, I felt, I felt energized, like, we, we've got to do better. And the next question is, what do you do to do better? And so as I hang out with a whole lot of old folks, you know, in my southern experience in Florida, the guy across the street, he's a uh, former uh, epidemiologist, is that it? Yes, I think so. And uh, he ran a kind of a health system uh, as that his wife is 90, he's 85. So she robbed the cradle. And uh, they are just so much fun. I mean, she's 90 years old and she uh, comes out of the house to come over and tell us something in her bare feet. So she's like a hippie, a 90-year-old hippie, you know. Where's jeans, you know, the whole thing, and they're so vibrant. And, you know, they, they have, uh, they're not followers of Jesus yet. They're religious, but I'm working on them. And, uh, and they, are, they are like, uh, he's the president of the association there. He's a very, very smart guy, you know, and he, he loves just chatting and talking, and we get together, and, you know, you can see uh, Elon Musk uh, um, ships going up into the sky from where we are, you know, in the distance. And so we gather every time one goes up there, SpaceX or something, and or NASA, and, and the connection is so strong. But I, in eight years, I have, I've been like in this school of growing old. And um, it's good, bad, and ugly. I mean, it's, I laid in bed one night, and I hear, help me, help me, help me. I'm like, I mean, it sounded like, almost like a cat, you know. I'm like, is that that tomcat out there again? And I, help me, help me. And I realized, no, that's, that's the, the place across the street. So, so I get up out of bed. My wife, she gets up too, and she's like, What's, what was that? And I said, I don't know. It sounds like it might be someone crying out for help. So we go across the street, and there's a 90-year-old woman, another 90-year-old woman, and we're surrounded by 90-year-old women. And uh, uh, we see that she's roaming in her driveway. And uh, so we went over, and I started, uh, I mean, she's in her underwear. She's, she. She says, there's someone in my house. And so I said, okay, you know, I've always wanted to do this. So I got out my flashlight, you know, and I'm going in the house, you know, <laughs> like this. No, I didn't. So I go in the house and I, I'm looking around. And I am like, well, what if there is someone in the house, you know? So it, was, it wasn't a very big house. So I go through there and I check it all out. There's nobody in there. But she said, I saw someone in here and they left. And But, but I found out later on she's been having some issues, you know, with dementia and stuff. So... So we sat down with her, and my wife is so good at this. Women are just have the, they have that tender kind of anointing. Men are like, okay, I've got a chisel. How can we solve this problem? You know, I mean, that's we've got hammers and chisels, and that's really about it. And um, if 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 a hammer can fix it, I can fix it. And uh, but women are just they they sense the moment, they move into it. And Cindy just began to minister to her and said. She said, um, how about if we just pray for the peace of God in this place? That's a good idea. You know, I should have done that. And, uh, and the lady goes, oh, yes, please. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And she, she's a Christian. She's a Christian. But in that moment, she comes back into 
clarity and uh, starts to look around and realize that people are there and, you know, a couple of other neighbors came in and everything. And we finally got her settled. My wife volunteered to sleep on the sofa in her place to just make sure that nobody gets back in the house. And, and uh, so these are kind of some of the experiences we have where I'm realizing uh, this is either a fearful time where you start to assess, is that my future? Am I going to be like that? And, you know, whether you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, it's always in your, you, un, you understand there's a, there's a uh, in the world, there's a brick wall in front of you, and you just don't know how far away it is. And you're going at whatever speed you are, hopefully to create more distance between you and that brick wall called death. In the kingdom of God, it's a door. It's a door that you come to, and you're going to open up, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But I found out that I've had greater challenges in this season of my life, which would be the 60 to 90 plus season. So we got the first season is the first 30 years where you're learning. Now, it doesn't mean you don't learn the rest of your life. I get that. But usually the most intense learning is in those first 30 years. You know, I mean, you're, you're getting your credit, credit, credentials, your degrees, your experience, whatever it might be, you know, that you get it during that first 30. And my 80-20 Pareto understanding is, is that, you know, 80% of, of the knowledge you have in life comes in those first, first 30 years. Now, I understand experience is added to, I get, I get all that really, but, but I, I'm saying it's compressed. It's really important. And in the Bible, 30 years is pretty significant. You know, Jesus uh, came out of quasi-hiding when he was 30. And he started, you had to be 30 years old to be a rabbi. He comes out, uh, announces, you know, in the synagogue, you know, in the words of Luke 2, and the Spirit of the Lord God's come upon me to preach the gospel of the poor. He basically quotes out of uh, Isaiah 61, which, by the way, Isaiah 61, I just put this on a little side here for you to think about. Isaiah 61 is a life map. It's fascinating. I read it, I probably read it once a month um, because it's a reminder. It starts out with power and anointing. You know, you're anointed to preach the gospel, to, what's that, what else does it say? It says, uh, I should know it by now. Yeah, uh, uh, release of the captives, yes, bind up the, the uh, release the captives, bind up the broken heart, or whatever. It's like, it's like a very doing kind of a beginning. It's like, boo, 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 you know, you're marching along. It's kind of like the first 30 years. I mean, you, you, you have energy, you have strength, you you don't have much of anything else, no wisdom, no money, things like that, but you do have energy, you know, and so you're digging, let's dig some holes, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and the wisdom usually takes care of that later on, you know, but, but at first you're like really, you're going after it. Then it transitions in Isaiah 61. Check it out sometimes, really amazing map, and you can find out where you are on it, but it transitions to being oaks of righteousness, and then we rebuild streets, and we, you know, it's, it's the second 30 of life, which is, which is about living. So you got learning and living, learning and living. I'm a, I'm a trained professional pastor, so everything either is an alliteration or a, it's, uh, it's connected in some way, you know, it's just the way we operate, the way we were trained in Bible school. So we're going to have three L's here. So you got, you got uh, learning, you got at 30, you, you take what you've learned, and Jesus was the... Uh, was the rabbi that was trained as a carpenter. Now, the cool thing with Jesus, and I've preached on this here in the past, because I check before I preach here, make sure I'm not repeating myself, but uh, 
a couple years ago, I talked about something that had come a real revelation to me. I got kind of stirred up reading Ed Savos's book, Anointed for Business, uh, which is a good bo a book that I'd recommend. And uh, I uh, was reading it, and he was talking about Jesus, which drove me into a deeper study of what Jesus, I'm fascinated with Jesus' daily life. Like, what if? What did Jesus do? Like, what time did he get up? <laughs> you know, how did he work as a carpenter? Well, first of all, I found out he wasn't really a carpenter as we know a carpenter. He was probably a, a stonemason, a craftsman. He did use wood, like for, you know, things like door frames and doors and tables and things like that, which is, which is fascinating in itself. Do you realize what, if he made furniture, you know, like some of that furniture could be around right now somewhere? Have you ever thought of that? What if they find a petrified Jesus chair, you know? Like, what would that be worth? What's the warranty on it? That's what I think. I was like, if you buy from Jesus, what's he say? You go, hey, you know, what if, the what if it breaks? He said, oh, it's not going to break. You know, you know, we created the heavens and the earth. This is gonna, it's going to last. It's going to break. Man cannot break this. Man cannot break the earth. Did you know that? I believe that we need to take care of our, our planet, you know, but, but I do not believe that uh, there's global warming to the point of ultimate destruction of the planet. I just don't believe that. And I don't believe man can do anything about it anyway. But I do feel we're to be good stewards of our planet. Don't throw your garbage, your McDonald's out the window, things like that. Hug a tree periodically. Let them know that you love them and you appreciate them. Those, there's nothing wrong with that. And, uh, and I think that Christians have abandoned that view. And we need to embrace that view again, saying we, we care about the earth. We care about God's creation. It is beautiful. It is stunning beautiful, you know. And so uh, you go through these first 30 years, you're learning Jesus' life, though. He, he probably crafted stone. The, the idea of the day, Nazareth, by the way, was a town of carpenters. They all specialized in it. So usually after the Sabbath, they would have the Sabbath. They would leave for the first day of the week, uh, probably what we would call Sunday now. And they would leave, and they would go to the surrounding towns to do that thing they do. So being from Nazareth means you were a craftsman. And uh, you would go there and you would work all week. You would probably sleep out on the ground or have someone that you could stay with or whatever if you're working on a house or in a boat of some sort. And so I did a deep dive in that because I, I realized that Jesus had a life. Jesus lived the human experience for 30 years. I mean, and, and then the three as he, as he was a rabbi. But the 30 years, he, he knew what it was to punch a clock. He knew what it was to to get up early. And what he would have done even prior to being 12, somewhere around, uh, well, definitely at 12, but somewhere 12 and 13, but definitely even as a child, whenever he showed the interest, his mom would release him. By the way, I, I wish I could talk about them for a minute. They are amazing people. We never talk about, you know, the Catholics talk about Mary all the time. Protestants never mention her. Somewhere in between is the truth. <laughs> like, she's not to be worshiped. She's to be revered. And when an angel shows up to a 16-year-old woman and says, uh, uh, hail, uh, what was the term they used? Do you remember? Favored one. Hail favored one. Like, how do you get favored by the time you're 16? I mean, she knew Scripture, her Magnificat that she quoted when she celebrated. It was like a song of celebration. They believe had 17 uh, particles of scripture within that magnificent. She was worshiping in scripture 
was coming out of her mouth. She was devout. She knew Scripture. So you can imagine when she found out that the Word was going to be planted in her that came from heaven in John 1, you know, the seed of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her and putting the seed inside of her, God, the creator of the universe. This is a heady thing, you know. And she was able to handle it because of who she was, the favor on her life. And then Joseph. Joseph is led by four dreams. That's what we really know about Joseph. He was led to leave Jerusalem. No, yes, to leave, leave Bethlehem. To, uh, no, he was, he was led by a dream to marry Mary, <laughs> right? And then to leave Jerusalem, to leave Egypt, and to not go back to Jerusalem. All led by dreams. So she was a Word of God woman. He was a revelatory man. You put that together, it's perfect. It raises the Son of God. I mean, it comes out that we might worship in spirit and truth. I mean, that's Joseph and Mary. So I give them, I give them ancient kudos. I say, well done, Joseph and Mary. But we don't know what happened to Joseph. He disappeared. He may have died. Something would have happened. But then Jesus was thrust after years of following his dad every Sunday morning to go out to work. He would follow his dad. They would chat. You imagine the bond made between a father and a son working together five, six days a week, going out somewhere else. There's no other people around. The things that he learned, the things that he knew. It was interesting. You know, he's 12 years old. He's in the temple. And, uh, you know, Mary's pretty upset at him. You worried me sick, you know. <laughs> you know, was, if you weren't dead, I was going to kill you. I mean, you know, this is how things moms say. Moms say, you know, when they're upset. And, uh, and Jesus said, uh, I had to be about my father's business. And you, you can imagine, like, what, what, what? I mean, that's why there's the, the ponderings of Mary. I love Catholicism, so I'm going to give you a few doses of it. But uh, the ponderings of Mary, I think it's four ponderings. These things that happen in her life, and she'd be like, hmm. You ever done that? With grandchildren, I do a lot of pondering. It's like, well, I'm either laughing or I'm pondering. <laughs> they are so funny, you know. They just, there's such cards. I mean, my little granddaughter Maddie is four years old, and she's just a snap of a whip, you know. She's just like clever little girl, and this is one of the Maddieisms that come up, but her mom and dad were in the car one day driving, and they were having some kind of a, a tense conversation. It wasn't an argument, but it was like a, an intense topic that they were talking about, and uh, Maddie's in the back seat, four years old, just turned four. This is about a year ago. Just turned four, and she said, um, "She said, do not take lightly of the holy word of God." And they stopped their argument, looked in the back seat. She goes, "I don't know what I said." And so she said, "I don't know what I said." And then she kind of went back, and from there on, they've been very cautious to talk about anything in front of Maddie, you know, because the spirit of God just puts her on like a glove and and says something. And she's done that many times, and she's, she's so funny because she always denies it right away. It wasn't me. I didn't say that. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, it's so much fun with kids. You, you learn that pondering. Mary had that pondering, you know, that understanding. And uh, she raised up his son, Jesus. They, it's rumored, you know, they just discovered in the past five years as they're doing all these uh, archaeology arche digs, yeah, around Israel, which they've been doing forever and ever. They, uh, they were up in Nazareth, and they discovered all these wooden dolls uh, that were there from the first century. 
And I thought, oh. I suffered the little children to come unto me. And I thought, maybe, maybe Jesus was so popular with children. You know, it's hard to be popular with children. They, they can smell a phony a mile away. And so they just won't hug certain people because they get a vibe about them, you know. And uh, kids are pretty discerning in some ways. And um, anyway, I thought, what if Jesus crafted dolls as a carpenter? Like, what if those little side things? That sounds like something Jesus would do, create toys. He did in The Chosen, so it must be true. <laughs> and uh, crafting doll dolls, maybe that's why the little kids ran to him. Like, here's the doll maker. Now, we always think that Jesus is walking around like, oh, children. <laughs> you know, or he's going, oh, a fisherman. You know, come, follow me. He dropped his net. Do you think anyone, you think a businessman would drop their net? And so we try to make it mystical, like, well, they knew something was special about Jesus. And so as soon as they saw him, they were like, ah, and they dropped their nets and followed him. No, I think Jesus knew them. I think Jesus had built in that area. Did you know it's even rumored? Can't prove it. That Jesus may have built Peter's boat. Carpenters were known to build those boats. He was... Nazareth was sandwiched between Jerusalem or between uh, Sea of Galilee and the Med Sea. So they would go and work over at the Med Sea. Some carpenters would go work around Galilee. Jesus obviously was familiar with Galilee, liked it over there. It's possible when he showed up, the fishermen knew him. And when he said, come follow me, they'd heard, hey, the carpenters become a rabbi now. I think I'll follow him. And it wasn't, wasn't foreign to do that. Some men just did that. They would follow a rabbi. Do some training, take a little gap year, you know, hang out with somebody who really knew what they're talking about, get coached, and, uh, and then come back to your fishing, you know, that, that's what you could do. And so it's possible, they said, I, I like this Jesus guy, he made those dolls for the kids, hey, built my boat. It's possible, that's why Jesus did not wake up in the boat when the, when the storm came. If he built it, he knew it wasn't going to sink. And they're like freaking out, you know, Jesus, your boat's sinking. <laughs> you know, you know it's, your boat's going to sink, you know. And he just gets up, commands the wind and the waves, the waves and the wind to be still. And they were. So when you start looking at the life of Christ, you realize he understands humanity. He was tempted in all ways, yet sin not. He understands humanity. By the way, let me remind you, temptation is not a sin. Some people get something in their head and they can't get it out. They're like, oh my God, I was meditating on that. You know, I thought about, oh Jesus, forgive me. But you don't have to ask for forgiveness for that. If you act upon it, you know, you want to bring your, your, your sins to one another. Confess your sins that you may be healed. You want to speak to one another. You want to speak to the Lord. You want to release these things. One of the most powerful things I've seen in recent history, I was in the Vatican uh, in May, going back in about four weeks. But I was in the Vatican in May and uh, we were at... Uh, St. Peter's. I went into St. Peter's, and uh, again, I don't know what your ideas are about, I know there's been abuse in a Catholic church. Some people are upset at how they were trained or raised up or things that, you know, the, the, the cult-like things that are attached to certain aspects of the Catholic church worldwide and the Protestant church worldwide and every church worldwide. But anyway, uh, there's those things that, that give you that, that I don't, I don't want to know anything about Catholicism. The problem is, is that we were, our history is all Catholic up to 500 years ago, and so, uh, and if you're Orthodox, a thousand years ago. But, but uh, there's something there. If, 
if they can do what they've done for 2,000 years and had one split, arguably one split, the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, that's, that's not bad. The Protestants, since 500 years ago, have split 65,000 times in 500 years. So if you're looking at this as a business person, what would I invest in? Do I invest in this or this? Now, obviously, we love Protestantism. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. You know, we love the unique little sliver of the kingdom of God that Awake Church is, and this is a good church. If I was here, I'd go here. I'd check out a few others first, but I'd come here. You know, I'd come here. I'd end up here. But... Uh, that's the first 30 years that Jesus' life was, was living as a man. And then he moved into the uh, learning. Then he moved into the living. I remember when I turned 30, I was in uh, Athens, Georgia. My father uh, was living there at the time. He was vice president of this, this company. He'd retired and got, he couldn't stay retired. He got back into in business, you know. And um, it was my birthday and he called me out on the back patio and he said, hey, your birthday's coming up. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, you're going to be 30. I said, yeah, I'm going to be 30. You know, two, two O's are gone, and uh, we're moving into 30. He says, you know what you need to do? I said, what? He said, run. Run with everything you got. And I, I you know, it stuck out in my head. He's not around anymore, but, you know, I, I pondered that so many times, like, what was he really saying? And I, I, I never, never really questioned him a lot on it, but I, I get it now. He was saying that if you're going to run, this is the time to do it. You are armed and dangerous. You've got the weapons of warfare. You've got the weapons of culture. You've got the, you've got the tools of culture, uh, and it's time to really use that, make something out of it, you know, create something, innovate, whatever it might be, you know. And so I did, man. I ran. I ran for 30 years, you know, planted churches, went all over the world, over 30 nations uh, where we minister. I mean, I've been to... Uh, I quit counting, actually I quit counting and then started counting again, but I quit counting at 60 times to Europe uh, over the past uh, 25 years. And uh, so I love England, I love Europe, I love, the, I love the sense of culture that I get when I'm there. There's a greater rest in Europe, I feel, than there is here in many ways. And so for me it's a respite, it's a, it's a soul place that I love to go to, particularly Italy. Italy uh, is now top of my list uh, these past eight years, and I might refer a little bit to it. Um, uh, Matt and I are going to be there in a month, and it's going to be a great time. We're going we're gonna to really love, uh, love on the country a little bit. Amazing things are happening there. So the, that 30, I ran. You know, I did stuff. I created stuff. I started churches. I moved to Canada for 10 years. I had a couple kids up there, a couple kids down here. We ended up with four children, you know, great kids, all Canadians, all Americans. My wife's Canadian-American. I'm the only one that's just American, you know. It's sad, but anyway, just American. No, I'm very proud of it. And uh, um, we ran. I mean, we ran. We ran. I could write books on it, you know. It's exhausting. We ran. And, uh, you know, when I was 49 years old, uh, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, cancer, Ended up in a, in a multi-year battle where I finally had to have stem cell transplant, which took care of all the hair on the side of my head. I never got it back. It gets just like a very, it's a desert. But uh, the top stayed okay, you know, but besides just they said it may come back, may come back a different color. I thought, well, that'd be cool. Red hair, you know, it'd be amazing. 
Uh, it didn't it didn't come back. So I mean, we we've got the scars in our body and our soul over a lifetime of running, and uh, and it creates something. It creates it can create it can create cynicism, or it can create wisdom. It can create bitterness, or it can create betterment. You know, there's truly a choice that takes place. And you say, yeah, but you don't know. No, no, no. I know some of it, and I have a whole lot of friends and family that have gone through deep things, and there is a choice, multiple, sometimes a daily choice you have to make where you say, I'm getting up today, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be happy about the world. I'm going to be, I mean, some people still haven't recovered from Hillary not getting in as president, and then some haven't recovered from Trump. Losing. You know, oh, he didn't lose. Well, anyway, what, for discussion purposes, he, he lost in the last election. So it's like there's opportunities for everyone, regardless of your political bent, to be very upset right now. And it, it, there's real true opportunity to be upset about the culture and the rapid eroding that is similar. In my historic studies, I do a lot of study on history. You know, the fall of the Roman Empire, we've checked off almost every box. You know, one of the key reasons that Rome fell, the Roman Empire, not just Rome the city, it did take about, well, it's our, our, you could argue that it hasn't totally fallen yet. I mean, we, we have parts of who we are as a culture that go back to Roman understanding and, and the uh, shaping of Rome. But one of the number one um, things that destroyed Rome was open borders. The barbarians... Sorry, they were Germans, actually. But uh, the barbarians, they called them that because it sounded like when they talked, they were saying bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians. And the barbarians were in the north, but the Rhine and the, and the, uh, and the overflowing of the Rhine kept them at bay for the most part and a heavy military up on the border. If you ever watch Gladiator, you get a feel of what that, what that looked like in the first scene in Gladiator. And so, um, so anyway... Uh, it was good, but then, then they started coming across on the ice in the wintertime, and they were marrying and intermarrying between people back and forth across the border, and Rome was so uh, thin on the edges that they ignored the borders, just said, well, you know, they're marrying people, they're building their own society, but then that whole society became a society of terrorists that eventually came down and walked right into Rome overtook Rome, and they, they had no idea what to do, so they burned everything and then went on to North Africa. You know, so they, they, weren't, they weren't like city builders. They were marauders, and they came in and destroyed it. So any hope that there's something future that could imagine out of this, is a, it's, a, it's a wish, you know, and it's a dream. So we're in a time where we're feeling this huge erosion, and it's stressful. It's the drip, drip, drip. I mean, <laughs> you know... It, Donald Trump, God bless his heart, but he, uh, the daily doses of Donald Trump will make you go crazy. It really will. I mean, the, he's got a nickname for everybody. It's, you know, and so you're like, oh my goodness, you know, and the policies, well, I really liked a lot of his policies, but, uh, but the daily drip of it, and now, now we've got, we've got actually the potential next year of two men running for president that could both be under indictment. Does it, isn't that a parable of some sort? 
Like, and I know, I know you disagree. You would say, well, hey, yeah, but these are, and, and I get that. There's a lot of unjust things going on. But it's, it's fascinating to me that, that the, most, the, the best that we can do in America is two old guys that should be here today. That would be under indictment, you know. So, so I'm like, okay, America's not as, you know, um, a blended as we, as we think it should be. And so we've not ascended to that, to that uh, idealistic moment as a nation, you know. So all that to say is there's good reason to be distressed. But if you can get a hold of something in Jesus Christ, I'm going to read some scripture here in a minute, something in Jesus Christ that you, you first of all, understand that, I don't know this for sure, but I'd say 80% of the Old Testament, 80% of the Old Testament is the struggle of God's people in tyrannical scenarios. Isn't that interesting? Babylonians, the Persians, whoever it might be, who are wanted to come in and kick the Jews around for a while, they came in and kicked the Jews around, you know. And so it was about living. Think of Esther. Think of Nehemiah. Think of Daniel. Think of Joseph. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of Jeremiah, who was dropped into a muddy pit, you know, uh, from his uh, chest down, you know. And, and you think of uh, all of them. All of them. They were, they, were, they were Egypt. They were all in bondage. It was all about them trying to get free for thousands of years, you know. It is the Christian experience. It says in the New Testament that they are an example of disobedience. They are an example, follow them. It says in Corinthians, I think it says it in Romans, it hints at it in Hebrews. So it's all over the New Testament where God's saying, you know, my people that I chose, yeah, don't do what they did. Don't have unbelief. Don't shrink back. Press forward. So we're a people, it's so easy to lean back. The Bible in Hebrews calls that uh, shrinking back. That's the word. Hoopastasis. I, I coined a word some years ago called the hoopastolic. <laughs> the hoopastolic is the movement backwards. It's like, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to do anything, anything like that. The apostolic is the, the sent forth. So you're either hoopastolic or apostolic. Hoopistolic is shrinking back. Hoopistolic is, I don't want to, look, I'm old enough now that I don't want, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to mess around. I'm tired of corporate America. I'm tired of, I'm kind of tired of people, really, and I'm tired of people, and I'm tired of, I'm tired of my neighbor, and so I'm going to burn my house down. I'm tired of, you know, it's, it's, we get really radical, you know, I've got to change everything or whatever, and I see a lot of older folks like me that are distressed by it. I really feel one of my missions at this phase of my life is to encourage people in this phase of life that you have treasures within you in earthen vessels. There's very powerful things that you can do if you will insert yourself, your experience, your wisdom, your understanding in God into the situation. You can be a transformational agent wherever you are, and it's really what we are supposed to be. And so in this first session, that's half over, and the second session, we're, we're going to touch on that a little bit, just experiment, look around. But I want you to look, first of all, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, just real quick. Deuteronomy 6. There's something about... Um, telling your story. And uh, story's a big thing right now. You know, there's... I can't think of the guy's name now who created StoryBrand. Uh, but there's... Uh, yeah, that's right, Don Miller, good stuff. 
there's something about our story. And so even back in my Dale Carnegie days, which would be back in the uh, late 80s, um, they were starting to talk about it. So they wanted to hear your story. Two minutes, give me your story. You know? And so you'd, you'd train people how to find things that they're passionate about. And most things you're the most passionate about are things that are personal. You know, your kids, your grandkids, your job, your career, whatever it might be, your home, your house, your, your travel, whatever it might be. I mean, you could talk about, I'm like that, man. I'm, I'm, there's a guy in our church, young guy, and I, I went and sat down, chatted with him the other day before service. He, he's kind of a part-time staff person, very well known in our area as a musician. And uh, he said, so what are you passionate about now? And I, you know, at first I thought, well, that's a strange thing to say, you know, and I thought, I like it though. I like it. So, well, right now I'm passionate, and I started telling him what I was passionate about, and, and I, can't, I can't stop talking about it, because I'm passionate about it, you know. I try to get it into two minutes. It could be two hours, though. I mean, it, you know, it could be, because I'm passionate about it. Right now I'm passionate about walking spiritual trails in Italy, you know, the Via Francigena, or the Camino de Santiago in Spain, you know. It's something passionate. I feel there's a charismatic experience on the trail. It's really freaky. And so, um, so I'm passionate about that. I talk to people so much so that we're kind of creating a little bit of a travel business to take people over to walk on the trail, to experience God in a very fresh way in a different culture, different environment, maybe end up in Rome and walk into the, the uh, St. Peter's and have that veil of the presence of God fall upon you like it did my wife and I just a couple months ago. As soon as we walked in, I looked at her, she looked at me and she said, did you feel that? And I said, yes. Yeah, I did. It was like, ooh, presence of God. And what I didn't finish earlier was we went up and they were having a service in there. It was Sunday morning. I didn't know it. The Pope was actually speaking. And uh, first time I ever saw him, we went up in a little side room because, you know, the old cathedrals are shaped like a cross. Kind of an accidental thing. Isn't that cool? If you fly over them, you see a cross, you know, and and it's a huge cross there. It it covers acres. I forget how It's like 18 acres, I think, St. Peter's. And uh, it took three generations to build it. Uh, so in, in the time of building that, which was, I think it was close to 600 AD, the, the other one they tore down, put the new basilica up, um, a man would work his entire life building that and then turn it over to his son, whatever craftsman they were doing, he would work his entire life building it and then another son, an entire life building, career building it. So three generations built it took 120 years. It took the floor, I think. It was like 50 years to do the floor. It's all marble and everything, you know. It's fascinating, you know. And, uh, and we build metal buildings, but there's, <laughs> there's uh, you know, <laughs> in, in nine months, you know, but it's, or a couple years. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, they say nine months, but it's really a couple years. Um, and, uh, but over there, you walk into it. So we were up there. We go into a little sidebar, which is like be the right arm of the cross, you know. I'm sitting in there, and people are confessing their sins. And they've got these booths where they can come up, and there's thousands of tourists in there and everything. And they're coming in, and uh, the uh, priest is there. And on on the booth, uh, the confessional, it's open that day. So you could get a private one, go in a little room, or you can just kneel down in front of the priest, and he will will, uh, pray pray for you. And uh, this particular priest, they have all the languages they speak. This priest spoke five languages. And so whatever language that fit with that, you go to that booth, you kneel down. So I'm watching. I'm sitting there. We're just watching. 
you go into this room to fixate on the crucifixion. You look at the cross. And Protestants do not understand it. I didn't. But boy, I do now. And so I'm watching. I'm looking at people. And there's people in there. They have come in there not to hear a sermon. They've come in there broken, hurt, wounded. And they sit and they fixate on the cross of Jesus. I watched an African-American guy next row down, probably about 60 years old, sitting on the end. I watched him, and he was looking at the paintings of, of Mary holding Jesus the, uh, right after his death. You saw the, the cut in his side where the spear went in his hands. He's laying there, and a mother, you know, she's kind of she's looking up to God and holding Jesus in her arms, and he's staring at that, you know, and he begins to weep. He begins to weep, and then he looks at the cross, and he looks, and he, he loses it. It's like it's like a, it's as if Benny Hinn's in the room laying a hand on somebody, and they're just falling apart. But this is from art. This is from the focus, the fixation of Jesus Christ. We've missed so much of this in the Protestant church in the past 500 years, but I was so moved by it. And then I look over here, and I see this lady as she's sharing her sins to the priest, and the priest looked looked very sincere. It wasn't like a professional guy, like, well, sorry, you know, everyone goes through that, you know, and I, you're going to get better, just, you know, suck it up, you know, grab yourself by the bootstraps. No, it wasn't that. It was this tenderness to this guy, and he reached out, and he just held her hand, and she just fell apart, you know, and I thought, you know what? We have missed something about the confessing, confessing of our sins to one another, that we may be healed. And so we, what we do is we bottle everything. We claim that we throw it at the Lord's feet. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we miss when we throw. You know, we, there's something about your innards that we are so cluttered and so disturbed and so wound up. And now in American Christianity with it being politicized so much, we, we, are, we are going crazy because there's no rest, there's no peace in our lives. There's just momentary fulfillment. I, I tell you, God is wanting this group, 60 and above, which is the group that has run for 30 years or more. They've learned, they've run, and, and now they're moving into a legacy 30, a legacy phase where they're, where they're able to, hopefully, if they've, they've you know, planned well, there's special grace, there's whatever going on in their lives, they're able to spend this season with wisdom, picking their battles, moving in the right way, and raising up and imparting something to another generation or two. So we may not be in a cathedral building a cathedral for 120 years, but in a sense, your life is the first, second, and third, potentially, of a cathedral. Mine would be the third. My grandfather was a preacher, a Pentecostal preacher. My father was a union leader, kind of missed it on that, but he did become a preacher by the time he died. And uh, my brother's a pastor, and uh, I'm a pastor, and so we're like third generation building something powerful. For now, the f I'm a first generation also to my children and to my grandchildren, so we're taking, I love Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson is a fifth generation preacher. Imagine that? Passing it now on to sons that are, you know, have a famous music label, Bethel Music, and his son Eric, who's preaching, he, he lives in Greensboro. Greensburg? Greensboro? South Carolina? Greenville, Greenville, South Carolina, right. I get all the greens mixed up. Greensboro's just down the street, yeah. So you right now have generational, if you say, well, we didn't have any children, you, there are people around you that the Lord wants you to take in as people that you can coach. You can coach them, disciple them, bring them into Christ, and help them navigate some of the difficulties. You know one of the biggest things you can say to somebody? 
is I know this is painful. I know this is difficult. This too shall pass. You will get through this. That's the one thing as you get old. I love when I got Social Security. Basically, I read all these articles, you know, on and, and Social Security and everything, and they kind of congratulate you that you got this far. It's like if you're this age, you can go on, and we have a little calculator that will tell you how long you're going to live. I'm going to live apparently to 84. So because once you get here, there's a whole bunch of people that didn't make it. And so you've, you're now on, you're, you're in a favorable place. And so you, you're winning already, you know, not that they didn't win, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but you now are being graced. I don't know if you feel this. You're being graced with extra years, really from 60 on. You don't know. I mean, I could have died at 49 when I had cancer. It was incurable until it was curable. It took six years for it to become, I, the doctor said, look, here's what we're doing. We're trying to keep you alive so that science can catch up with where you are. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to take 20 years. I'd be dead by then. You know, that's what I'm thinking in my head. But it truly did. Six years later, there was an option. It was stem cell transplant. And that stem cell transplant saved my life. And here I am 10 years later, you know. So I'm looking at it, and I thought, I thought, wow, Lord, you, you've given me borrowed years. I'm like a Hezekiah. I'm a, you know, Lord, you've given me a years. And what it did was, let me just tell you from my vast experience in this, what, what it did was is it made every moment, every conversation, every engagement precious. It really was. I mean, it was weird. It was just like a light turned on. And, you know, before it's like you, you ever sit in front of TV, watch a football game and eat nachos? You're like, or popcorn or something in a movie. Like, I'm usually done with the popcorn by the first five minutes of the movie. Because during all the their previews, you know, I'm like, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, how did I eat that much, you know? So that's what we do with life. The first 60 years is like, and there's a time where you're like, wait a minute. I think I need to eat better for number one. But I also think I need to, it's not, this is a big American thing. We're into quantity. Europe, they're into quality. Well, obviously, we have quality here in the U.S., but we're into quantity. It's super family bags of stuff, you know. It's like, oh, you know, and now, now I, I was in a, uh, Speedway yesterday just paying for my gas, and they had this, this uh, like, big gulp thing. It was a gallon. It was this like big, I'm going to use it to water flowers at home. I almost, I almost bought it just because it was like, this will be a collector's item 100 years from now. I mean, it, honestly, it was like this big. It might have been two gallons. It was huge. Some of you have that, don't you? Yeah, it was big. It's really big. And I thought, you know, I, the weight of that when you, you know, obviously it's, I, I think it's just a joke, you know, but I looked at it and I thought, that's America. That's America. We make things so big until we get sick. You know, we just, that's what we do. We, we go to buffets. We, we love, hey, buy one, get one. Woo, woo, you know. And in Europe, they, they serve you like five, six, seven courses, and, and the food is about the size of that. And you're like, oh, you know, and you cut it up nicely because you're in Europe now, and you eat properly. And, and I'm thinking, there's a quality aspect that we kind of miss sometimes in life. So that's why you can burn through life, get to a place in your 60s, 70s, or 80s, and be like, what was that all about? Man, I blew my best years working my tail off. You know, I, I got to say, this generation, they call millennials lazy. I, I think some, in some ways they may be like, like my generation was as baby boomer. There might have been some of that. But 
I think they're kind of smart how they're working and what they're, how they're crafting, what, if they are working, what, they, what they've crafted and what they're doing. And they're, they're, you know, they've got, I don't have enough personal time. I don't, you know, I feel, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I have, uh, I'm getting stressed from this. And part of it's like, maybe they're trying to break through a brick wall that we never broke through. And they're not, maybe they're not lazy. They're searching for something that is greater fruit, less effort. Well, I've been searching for that my whole life. And when I find it, I attach myself to it. When I find an easy way to make money, I attach myself to it. Everyone should. You know, hey, I can make greater, you know, <laughs> I've got some things I'm involved in right now where I, you know, I can make, you know, I can make $800 an hour. So it's like better than my day job. I'm called to my day job, but it's like, well, man, you know, I could do this. This is pretty cool, you know, and let's do a little bit more of that, and that will help supplement my day job, which is definitely not $800 an hour, you know. So, so it's like, okay, and, and you, you know, you, there's, there's that desire for fruit. I don't, I, I think we're moving into a time in history. I am going to read from Deuteronomy in a minute. The Jehovah's Witness probably already read it, but anyway. <laughs> There's, uh, I may talk about this tomorrow in church, but AI, you know AI is the second city in the promised land, right? Isn't it interesting? After the great win in Jericho, they got defeated in AI. And so when AI came up immediately, I thought, oh, this is a parable. Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. It's artificial, but it's intelligent. I started looking at it, and I actually use it now uh, with my stuff. It's, it saves me hours a week. It's, uh, you know, Christians have battled telephones, cars, automobiles, telephones, cars, uh, internet. You know, it's going to be the seed of the Antichrist, and, and these may be true, I don't know. But uh, social media, you know, and, and not realizing that these are neutral kind of platforms that can be used for multiple things. And because of our absence from being involved in it, we're finally, you know, we typically show up late, but uh, our absence allows others to control it. And I really want you to pray, you know, there's a recent thing you might have heard, watch this, where somebody asked AI what... Uh, should we be concerned about going into the global future of what's going to happen? And, you know, AI has ideas of the challenges that people are going to face in the future. You know what the number one challenge AI said was? AI. It says that actually artificial intelligence is going to be one of the greatest challenges uh, to the human race. And, and it's interesting because AI had solutions for how to avoid that, that guardians need to be put on AI so that it uh, will not self-actualize, self-realize, whatever it is, uh, where it realizes, hey, I've got power to make decisions on my own, and I'm the moral leader in the world, and actually humans are kind of a, a pain, and so let's get rid of humans, you know, and Elon Musk at least thinks that's a possibility, and is very concerned about chat GPT and some other things that are just emerging, and because you can program AI in the sense of uh, uh, creating a moral construct for it, but uh, there could be a time when AI will be unleashed, and unleashed in the wrong hands, it could, it could bring about great destruction worldwide, truly. 
existential threat to the human race. Now, if you're a Christian, you're not worried about that because you know that nothing like that's going to happen without the permission of God. He's not given that yet. But there can be a whole lot of damage done in the midst of it. We could be living in a so-called third world country pretty quick uh, with this. So, so it's something to attend to. And a lot of us, even as older people, look at it and go, I'm not worried about that. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. Elon Musk says within seven months, he said this a month ago, within seven months, everyone will realize the potential of AI. They're just kind of learning. The average person is just really even using the terminology. But it's, it's going to become a massive part. It will affect, in America alone, 70% of all jobs will be affected by AI. So I've done deep dives on this. I, I read a lot. I read faith popcorn stuff. There's a lot, of, a lot of things out there in culture. I love reading the Word of God with the juxtaposition of, of culture and seeing like, okay, here's what God says. Here's what culture's saying. God's going to win in the end. How is the culture going to be affected by it? What must we do in the midst of that to come together and minister effectively, live effectively in a culture that's going to be so uh, greatly affected by this, you know? And I really believe we're moving into a season. We're going to 1030, right? Okay. We're moving into a season of... Uh, Let's put it this way. I've got great peace about the future. I really do. Of course, there's going to be anomalies. There's going to be up and down. There, apparently, there's aliens now. We're just finding that out. Uh, government's known about it for 60 years, but, you know, we're finding out there's, there's what do they call it? There's biological uh, substance, whatever they call it. Uh, biological evidence. There's technological evidence that they've been reverse engineering for 60 years. You know, I think they would know that uh, by now. But anyway, uh, stuff that's way beyond and all these visible, I mean, congressional hearings this week, this past week. On who, are these aliens true aliens? Is, it, is this China? Is this Russia? Is it U.S. intelligence that we don't know about? Secret projects, which is being hinted at, that there's secret projects we do not know about, money that was diverted to, to, to things that were very futuristic, you know. So we look at all that and we're like, oh, wow, what if they find out there's aliens? Can they be saved? Did Jesus die for them? It says he came into all the world to preach the gospel. Well, they weren't here, were they? If they're on Mars or something, do they know Jesus? I mean, it's going to cause a lot of confusion, you know? Kind of like, what is a woman? I mean, that's caused a lot of confusion across <laughs> America. I've asked that for, for my whole life, but, you know, it's apparently now a topic that we all need to talk about and try to figure out. And so I'm looking into the future. I, don't, I feel peace about it. I feel that, that actually we're going to feel very quickly the understanding of what a follower of Jesus is actually like. I think it's going to be clear. You know, it used to be clear because we wore suits and ties, you know, on Sunday. And, you know, we went to church and all that. And, well, they're Christians. You know, they must be a Christian. Uh, but the, the, the quality of the Christian, we've been in the quantity I mean, we've we, you got YouTube. You can gobble up every sermon that you can hear. You can hear any worship band you want to hear. We are inundated by that. It's not about all that. All that is important, but it's about locality. It's what I love about Europe. You know, I don't know if you're a wine drinker. If you go to Europe and you drink wine, particularly in France or Italy, you know, you're drinking wine that was that was plucked within 20 miles of where you are. It's farm, truly farm to table. You know. The, the lamb you're eating was raised in a field right over there. 
You know, the fish, the frutti de mare that you eat, it's just, it was just dredged out of the ocean this morning, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. We're over here, you know, we got stuff packaged, you don't know when this stuff was created, you know, and, and, and so you have to really search out healthy things and everything else. But there's, there's something about the organic, ancient aspect of Christianity that's about to become highly attractive to a culture that is confused, that is broken, that is fearful, and is hopeless. And if Christians do not speak into that, we will be overwhelmed by the hopelessness and we will die hopeless as Christians. We'll be surprised when we get to heaven, the Bible says, as those who escape from the fire. But we don't want to be those people. We want to be a people, regardless of our age, that is speaking clearly, that is loving clearly, that is not anti-everything. You know, I, mean, I recently, I, I said something in comment in the church and said, look, we, we've got to open our hearts to allow LBGTQ folks into the church. Like, we're going to the streets and ministering to them. Well, invite them to come into the church. You know, in the Celts in the 5th century, the reason they grew so fast, in 27-year period, pre-internet, over 200,000 people, they believe, well, between 100 and 200,000, they weren't counting a lot back then. Uh, souls coming in, but between 100 and 200,000 souls came into the kingdom with in a 28-year period with a country that has no roads. They're all little villages, mainly along the sea. Ancient pagans, and St. Patrick comes in in 28 years and converts. He, he got the snakes out of Ireland, so to speak, and now we all get green beer because of it, you know. So it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing, and he did that in, in, in a a classical time in human history, right at the end of the classical period. I mean, it's, it's pretty ancient for us. And, and you look back at that and say, okay, what, is, what does that mean now? A great book was written in, I think, 99, How the Irish Saved Western Civilization. It, it, if you're reading, it is a good book to read. Thomas Cahill, excellent, How the Irish Saved Western Civilization. It's a picture of Christ going into a pagan culture, literally raising them up so that Oh, man, I felt the anointing on that right now. Whew. Raise them up, not knowing that that's what it was for. Raise, they were like, they were on an ancient island. It's called Ireland for a reason. It's an angry Ireland. It's an angry island. They didn't sleep much at night. They were tormented by demons. They worshipped demons. St. Patrick went in. The soul that he went after was his former master because he was a slave. As soon as he heard that his ship had come on the shore, he knew that Patrick was coming to kill him, so he burnt his castle down and committed suicide. And when Patrick heard of it, he fell down on the ground and wept because he was that close to winning this guy to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he went throughout Ireland, winning souls, pagans, surrounded by Druid priests, cursing him. One, of, one event says that he and his two companions transformed themselves into deer and ran into the woods and they and they never found them. It's like, what? What? This is craziness. You know? I mean, and he preached, but what he didn't realize, he was raising up on that island a monastery, a national monastery of people. Even if you go to Ireland to this day, and a lot of those islands that are around the UK in that area, uh, the Faroe Islands, uh, uh, the uh, Hebrides, not the Hebrides, the... Uh, uh, One's up north, I forget now. But you go around those islands, they have a classical Christian feel in the air and the soil when you arrive. You feel it. 
When your feet step into Ireland, you're like, whoa. If you're attentive, <laughs> you know, some people are like, hey, where are we going to go? You know, where, where's the pub at? Or, you know, whatever. But you step into Ireland, you feel like there's something about this land. Well, yeah. Ancient pagan land. Even the Romans were afraid of the Irish. But he raised up this army of missionaries that started to spread all over the world. They'd get in a little coracle boat made of leather. They would hold up a sail and say, Holy Spirit, take me where you will. They believe that the Irish, some of them ended up in West Virginia. There's writings from the 5th, 6th century on, on the sides of mountains, cliffs in West Virginia. They're still studying right now, but it has the feel. The pilgrims, when they arrived, said that some of the Native Americans had Irish accents. It was bizarre. What? On leather boats, they came across the northern bridge of Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, Newfoundland, down here and into West Virginia? That means they were the, they were the first Europeans a almost a thousand years before Christopher Columbus. And so you read these things, you're like, did, did Patrick have all this in mind? He raised up this army, spiritual army, of loving Irish people that went all over the world. And because of it, they saved civilization because the Roman Empire had just collapsed. Everything was collapsing all around, but God had a plan. He always has magi somewhere. And the magi are coming. You may not see them, but the magi are coming. Your life right now, you are saved for a moment like this. This period of your life is not just to lay on the beach in Florida. I'm going to do some of that. I guarantee you. I've now portioned that. I'm going to do it because I believe in beauty. And so I'm going to go to Italy. I'm going to explore the world. But I tell you, I am taking the presence and power of God. And I believe one of the greatest powers we have. How many of you saw Jesus Revolution, the movie? Was that not powerful? Man, it was powerful. If you were raised in the 70s, which you all were, I mean, you're like, wow. I mean, I was with the music. I like the music. Yeah, I forgot about that, you know. The drugs being dropped down in huge crowds. What an amazing thing, you know. It's just, but in the midst of it, there's Calvary Chapel. This little chapel, religious little chapel. But all it took was one guy, one guy, Chuck Smith, who said, you know what? I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with these smelly hippies and believe that God's going to do something. And, and uh, I, there was imperfections there and everything, but w most of us, it's something like 70% of ministers in America are rooted uh, out of an experience during the Jesus movement. Did you know they're all retiring right now? And, they, and this transition is not working well. It's collapsing all across the country. It, there's a lot of problems. I mean, we're seeing Hillsong got hit. Uh, of course, we saw... Um, uh, to Mars Hill, uh, got destroyed here a few years ago. Um, Southern Baptists are being really ripped apart right now. Methodists, I think they split one-third just a couple months ago. Whole new denomination, so that makes it 65,001 that have split. Um, another denomination. So there's, there's a movement of cleansing in the church in America right now. Do you feel that? Yeah, and it, this is not a time to run. This is a time to cling and a time to really find our people, you know, who our people are. And, and in fact, I feel this in closing of this first session here. Something, Matt, and I, I don't want to get beyond what you're going to do, but there's something about this group, and it's even larger than this, obviously. This is the beginning of something. 
God wants to form this group together to, number one, get to know one another and pray for one another in this unique time of life, this, this third phase that a lot of people never get to. But you're now here. And maybe you've got a little money. Maybe you've got some experience. Maybe you've got some understanding. Some of the most powerful people in my church are the people, I mean, uh, we've got a lady in our church. She'd be, uh, i got to be careful here, but she's not quite in our group, but she's, she can see it, you know, where we are uh, age-wise. And uh, she's the architect of the heartbeat bill. Sits in the second row every week. She's a faithful person. She's one of my mentees. Uh, I have this uh, lead teams group that I work with uh, to raise them up to do stuff within the church, preaching and teaching and things like that, worship, whatever's needed. And she's one of them. And I mean, she's in the second row. I actually stop my sermons a lot and get advice from her in the middle of the sermon. Janet, what do you think about that? You know, and she tells me. She's a very bold woman. I mean, she's the one that took me to the RNC a couple years ago when it was in Cleveland, and she told me how to get up into the front row and how to meet. I mean, we met all kinds of people during that time. It's because of Janet. Janet is like Joan of Arc, you know. And she flies down to Washington until Huckabee came into our town. A friend of mine uh, chauffeured him from the uh, from the airport, and he and my friend asked Mike Huckabee, Governor Huckabee, he said. What are you coming here for? And he says, well, I've learned years ago that when Janet calls, you come. And I thought, wow, that's pretty significant, you know. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So she's that kind of person, you know. And she's a part of the community. I mean, as powerful as that is, I've got one lady right now fighting. Uh, basically, her town is receiving some of the uh, debris from the explosion of the train in Ohio in uh, East Palestine. And they're burying it near a creek that goes into a river that goes into Lake Erie. And so she stood and just said, wait, no, this can't happen right here. You're going to find somewhere else to do it. She was the only person in the whole community that spoke up. Now the whole community is speaking up. In a matter of months, she's been in the papers every day. This woman is in our church. And she is just like, man, she's like a pit bull, boy. She's just going after this thing. She's one of my lead team people. And I, I'm seeing people, she too would be, she's just below this age group right here, but she's not being deterred by, by not having experience, not having maybe even the education for that. I don't know fully what her education is, but it's not in this. But a woman of passion with a voice can change a nation. Right now, 17 states have adopted the heartbeat bill. You know, um, Florida just did recently, last month. They just changed the name of it, but that was the heartbeat bill, and that was Janet Porter speaking into, into their, she called right DeSantis' office and, and uh, talked to him about it. So they, these, are, these are people that are taking the nectar that has been created over these years, the fine wine, the oil, whatever you want to say, there's something in you that is meant for this time right now. Otherwise, you'd be with Jesus already. There's something that you're called to do right now. So in Deuteronomy, it says this about your story. It says, uh, this is a commandment, that these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God, keep all of his uh, statutes, and it goes on, it goes down here to verse 3 where it says, therefore, hear, O Israel, 
be careful to observe it and that, and that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So the promise lays out in front of us. They could see it literally across the river. I don't know what your thoughts were throughout your life, what this phase would be life, like. I know some people are, are devastated. They, they say, wow, this, I, didn't, I didn't think it'd be like this, you know. You know, there's all kinds of jokes, you know, in your 60s, the wheels start coming off, you know, and you start getting physical problems and things and difficulties and challenges, you know, and it, there, there is that side of growing older. But let me tell you something. I believe there's a great grace for being released for people in this phase, particularly in America right now, that if we stand together and hold up one another, we're going to help one another through this last phase right up to the doors of entry, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We can do this together, and I think this group right here is a, is a seed that is planted in this new building. How many, how many buildings have you owned over the past? How old's the church? 22 years. How many? One? This one. So after 20, 22 years, wow, that's a long time, Matt. He was a lot younger when I first started with him. Uh, 22 years, all of a sudden, this magnificent Jim, G-E-M, Jim, Jim is here. I was walking about before and I thought, oh, wow, wow. You know what I feel? I feel the call when I walk through here. I feel like for such a time as this. What a perfect moment right now. I mean, people are going to drive by. What is that A? A, what is that A? Oh, on the sign it says awake, awake church. What's that all about? That sounds interesting. You, you are about, you are Ireland. It's taken this long, but it's for this moment, and there's a reason for it. This is a time to become highly evangelistic. This is a time to become highly influencing pulling people in, drawing them over. God's about to do something in Winston-Salem. And I believe this senior group, I don't know what, I don't even know what, it's embarrassing, I don't know what to call us. You know, we're mature. <laughs> I think I'm mature, I think I'm smelly, so I don't, so I know my mature. Uh, we're, we're, uh, what's that? Bonus time. bonus time. This is bonus, this is the bonus group here, you know. <laughs> We're getting years we didn't even know we really had, especially the way some of you li lived. You're, you're really, what's that? Season. Okay. Refined? Antiques? Antique roadshow. Yeah, that's us. There's something going to happen. Let me tell you, younger people need you. I know in culture right now it doesn't feel that way. But there, there's coming a time, I honestly believe, I think it's within the next two years, that we're going to feel a turning. I felt it last week. I felt a turning. But that's when I really got super positive about the future. I thought, okay, that was what I was waiting for. I feel this turning. There's a turning. I think America was about to be overwhelmed, and a standard is being raised up against it. And uh, it is the Lord. He's raising up standard. I don't know how long it's going to last but I believe he's giving us a season of peace. The Lord woke me up, and I'll close with this because I'm right on time here. Oh, I'm past. Um, two minutes past. Uh, there's, the Lord woke me up several years ago, probably about five. In the morning, really early, like five. And I'm laying there, and the Lord said, he said, it's clear as a bell. It wasn't an audible voice, but I've been around long enough that I know when he speaks. 
And he said, what if I was to tell you you were entering a 500-year renaissance? And I thought, first of all, it affected my eschatology. I thought, well, well no, there's no way we can last another 500 years. Like, you know, come on, we just Antichrist and Jesus and rapture, you know, it's always, all these things have been thrown into my eschatology over the years, you know. But there's no response to that. It's not like, oh, yeah, you got a good point. I guess, let's say 50 years, you know. No, it's 500 years. And I thought, what it did was, whether that happens or not, what it did was it instantly shifted me out of crisis mode into building mode. Because I thought, well, if there's 500 years of renaissance, rebirth, we've got some stuff to do. If you feel like everything is closing down, shutting up, going down to hell in a, a handbasket, why, why do anything? I mean, it's all going to burn. I hear charismatics all the time saying, it's all going to burn, it's just going to burn. I'm thinking, no, it's not. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And the Lord's going to rule over it all. And somehow we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ for what the Bible says, what we did good and what we, what we did not, what we didn't do that was good. That, that's for believers. That's the, the judgment seat of Christ, which he's merciful. But, but I, I want to make sure that when I get there, it's like, it's a celebration, you know. I'm not one who just as escaped from the fire came in there. And so there's a light. I'm going to, in the second part of this morning, uh, this, I, I'm telling you this so you don't grab a donut or something and leave. But there's um, the second part of this morning, we're going to do a bit of an activation on how to move now into what God is calling for you. But the number one thing that you can get out of today, even though I didn't cover it well, is that I told stories, you're a storyteller. And your story is important. And your story is the anchor. If you haven't read uh, Rod Dreher's book, that I'm trying to think of right now, it's the joys of being 66. Live not by lies. Live not by lies. Uh, you need to read it. It's very powerful, and it's about how to operate in an antichrist culture and be victorious. How to be a Daniel, how to be a Joseph. Great book, read it two years ago. Really was a, a game changer for me about how I looked in the future. Last part here, these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently. So you need to teach to your children. My son sat down with me the other day. He said, Dad, why, why did we leave Canada when we did in 1996? He was six when we left. And I laid it out, and he goes, what, you had just built a new building for the church? I said, yeah, you could, it was like a new car smell. You know, it was still there. Two years, we were in a new building, and the, and the Lord called me to come back to America. He said, and, and you could tell that was like, he didn't know that. He's 33 now. He was registering like, it's our history. It's our story. He was born in Canada. He's, a, he's really American. <laughs> he said, you'll teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, or use fridge mags, and on your, and on your gates. And it says, so it shall be when the Lord come brings you into the land. When this happens, this is what's going to happen. This is the promise we've all been looking for since the Jesus Revolution. He shall give to you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. 
Houses full of good things which you did not fill. Hewn out wells which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And when you've eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Let's all stand if we could. It's time to take control of our destinies. It's time to, to plan, actually. I want to talk a little bit about planning in this next session. And we're, you're going to leave this morning with a, with a statement of some sort about your next step. That's what I do when I coach. We use a GROW method, and it's basically getting people to know the way out of where they are into the place of promise that God has given to them. Lord, I pray right now that fire, that, that little... I, I, I love when I, when my, <laughs> there's something about the sound when a pilot light in the water heater blows out. For some reason I get these down drafts periodically that blow it out. And you go down there and you're a little nervous, you know, because you're not sure how much gas has actually filled the room there. It's usually protected, but you don't know, you know. And so you got your little clicker, you know, a little lighter, you're going to light it. And you get down on the floor and you open up the little gate and you look in there and you, you turn on the pilot light. And, and uh, when you do, it lights the light, and then you turn up the gas, and it's like, Whoa. that sound? That is the sound that is coming. It's going to be just like that. Whoa. You are a pilot light. God is about to turn on the gas. And when he does, awake is going to go from what it is, a pilot light, to Whoa. This church will actually represent awakening in this city. Awake is such an unusual, different name. It's so perfect, though, for this moment. So, Lord, I pray for every candle in this room, every light in this room. Lord, let it not go out, this little light of mine. <laughs> I'm going to let it shine. I pray, Lord, that evangelists will come out of this room, the fervor a passion that is, that is drenched in experience, but also drenched in the presence of God. Lord, that you would encounter everyone here and anyone that needs to leave because they got responsibilities or job after this. I pray, Lord, something I'll pray at the end of the next session as we kind of commend people and commission them out. I pray, Lord God, for, a, for a, uh, the time of their life. Lord, that this will be the retirement they never dreamed of, where they are so involved in things that may, they may not even be being paid for, but they're so involved in it, and they're seeing what, what they fought through over 30, 40, 50 years, Lord, being turned over to another generation, Lord, that is on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, as we become lighters of people's pilot lights all over the city. We bless it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. For updates on future episodes, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. For more information about Awake Church, visit awakechurch.com.